Shalom from Jerusalem and welcome to a very special episode of the Karim Podcast. Uh, this week's episode was recorded over two nights at Shavua HaSefer, um, book week at Jerusalem's first station um, at the big book fair there. Uh, Ari and I were joined by a plethora of wonderful, wonderful guests. Um, and so what follows is our very brief conversations with all of them. So we're joined now by the wonderful Shana Goldberg, um, whose book, What Do You Really Want, was published uh, last year by Mugged Books. Shane has been a, by now, a regular guest uh, on the current podcast. This is actually the first time she and I have met in person, although we've spoken yes. several, several times. Um, so first of all, I mean, can you tell us how, how, what's been your experience over the last year since the book's been published um, in terms of, sort of the, have you noticed a difference in the reach you've had? Um, not just with your students, but with people around the world having read your book? Uh, first of all, it's really wonderful to be here, wonderful to meet you, wonderful to be here at Anushalayim at Shavua Sefer. So uh, it's a great question, because on the way over here, my kids were saying, Emo, what if no one buys your book? And I said, well, actually, <laughs> guys, I really wrote the book for my children and for my students. That was really my motivation. And anyone extra that reads it, to me, is a bonus, meaning uh, there's people out there that I really felt like care about and I'm invested in and I wanted them to have uh, these messages in print but what's been really really surprising and wonderful over the last year are all the people that I did not know who have been in touch and who have reached out have said that the book has impacted them has made a difference in the decisions that they've made and the way that they think about things and feeling empowered in uh, the ability to trust themselves and that has been really rewarding in a way that I didn't anticipate. I mean, so the book is fantastic. It's quite different to things that have been published by Muggin in the past. I and mean, could you give a very brief, the elevator pitch, I suppose, for the book itself? What's the, uh, the thinking, the philosophy behind it? So the philosophy behind the book is um, an approach to decision-making. In my work as a mashkicha ruchanid and migdaluz and also as a yotzer halacha, and in general, just in conversations people in life, I realized how often many of us struggle with decisions, the big decisions, the little decisions, the day-to-day, and also the monumental. Uh, And in my conversations with students, I was really looking for something that could help them feel empowered to be able to make decisions in a way that they felt good about. And what I realized is that if you listen closely to people and their thought process as they're approaching a big decision, oftentimes when you pay attention, you could get to the heart of what's on their mind and you can realize that some of what's motivating their thought process is different fears and some of what's motivating is a sense of uh, confidence or trust in something that they want and it's important to address those fears fears are real uh, we can't ignore them I would never want someone to deny fears you have to be able to confront them and look at them and think about them but the question then is do you want those to in the end um, control what decision you come to or do you want to look and say okay that's a real fear it's a legitimate fear and yet i still know what i want to do despite that so the book is really laying out a way to approach decisions i think one of the things that makes me happy that people sometimes say is like everything in there was so almost like simple and obvious it was just never laid out for me in that way that made sense of it right and that's also i think one of the brilliant things about the book is that it it's not telling you something you didn't necessarily know before it's just is it's laying out the thing that Perhaps we know intuitively, but it's so unbelievably helpful to have someone validate those feelings or validate sort of that thought process that you think you might be alone. Yes. Uh, the book is sort of peppered as well with um, real life stories, things that students have come to you and asked, or friends, family members who have, you know, real life situations they've been in and sort of you go through the 
decision-making process. Yeah, it's all based on real-life things, even though I was very careful to change lots and lots of <laughs> details. I didn't want any student being like, how could you have put me in the book without asking? Right. So all the stories are changed except for two of them, which are as is, and I got permission. <laughs> and the rest of them could have happened to a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. And is there one story that sort of had, that either is in the book or perhaps you left out that always stuck with you as one that was, you know, it, it was, the decision was so perhaps complex or just so obvious to an outsider that the, the fact they came to ask you is in um, itself inspiring? Okay, my favorite, I think, story in the whole book is one of the ones that really happened exactly as it's written, which is a dear, dear student of mine. Uh, in the book, I call her Tova. That's not her real name. But uh, she was struggling. She had dated a guy on and off several times. We were together. They broke up. They were back together again. They were on round number three. And she said to me, like, this is it. You know, I have to decide either we're getting engaged or we're breaking up. And if we're breaking up, like, this is it. And then she, I said, okay, how are you going to do that? And she said, I gave myself a deadline. And in a week, I'll call you. But I have no idea, like, what the answer is going to be. And when she called back a week later and she said, Mazatov, I'm engaged. And I said, how do you decide? So she said, I flipped a coin. And I said, come on, what do you mean? Get out of here, I don't believe you. And she said, no, no, I really flipped a toy. coin. I just had to flip it a few times until I ended on what I wanted. And that was such an eye-opening moment for me and for her, I think, because you know, when it landed on tails and she was like, no, 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 three out of five, she realized that despite the fact that she had been saying that she really didn't know and it was 50-50, she had some deep intuition and she had fears and they were legitimate fears, but she also really knew what she wanted. And that, that's it. And sort of just by flipping a coin, you sort of you realise what you wanted while that coin's spinning in the air. Yeah. That's, that's really fantastic. So you've been involved uh, with Margaret Books and Karen for a while now, but if there's uh, any book that you could recommend that isn't your own, um, which Karen Margaret book do you think anyone here, anyone listening at home should definitely uh, pick up and read? Hands down, I think that every modern Orthodox Dati Lumi person out there should be reading Rabbi Sachs' The Great Partnership. It's a wonderful book where he discusses how to live with the tensions between science and Judaism or the world and Jewish values. And I think um, he has some really, really wonderful and important ideas in there that are basic for like living in the 21st century and uh, being religious committed person. Uh, I also see the books by say her Echa book made a real difference to my Echa this past summer and uh, I would recommend people to also get their hands on that this summer now and uh, Tisha B'Av making its way around. So we said that what do you really want um, is something slightly different to other Magid books. Was publishing with Magid um, part, part of your decision making um, in publishing the book in order to bring this source hey. of book? to a more modern orthodox, perhaps academically inclined crowd. Absolutely, um, absolutely. I thought very carefully about who I wanted to publish the book with and people were pushing me to self-publish and undo all kinds of other things and very much wanted to publish with Magid and very much wanted the Magid name. First of all, I have so much respect for what you're doing. Definitely, Corin in general, but specifically the Magid brand. And also this book, in one sense, it's like, you know, the self-help genre. On the other sense, I would like to believe that there's very deep educational messages about how we are raising our children, how we are educating our students, the way that mechanchem and educators think and approach different things, rabbis and teachers and different community leaders. I mean, rabbis have read this book and have told me that it's helped them in their counseling. I've had therapists approach me also because there's, I hope, ideas that are universal to all of us. Right. I think also 
friends and the way that friends are able to be there for their friends who are going through hard times and who sometimes need advice and a friend who comes to me and says, you know, a, a, a friend turned to me. I would have felt lost. I didn't know what she wanted, but all of a sudden I realized I just had to listen and kind of direct her to figure out what she wanted. Those are messages that I think um, very much are important, not only for the modern Orthodox community, but certainly as a springboard that I hope will reach a broader community. It was a decision, actually, if I wanted the examples in the book to be Jewish, to be specifically modern Orthodox, and I, I felt like starting with our community as a home base was a good way to go, and the name I think, lends credibility to that. Right. And so you mentioned the story before about you know, a couple who ended up getting engaged, thank God. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are those examples of, sort of making aliyah, work issues, fam- yeah. family, school choices, school choices, career, even um, retirement examples, divorce, mental health issues. Uh, issues um, even that apply to uh, age group that's you know not where I am right now but I've been in conversation with people who have been uh, considering when to when to make a change in their career when to retire if they should consider divorce if they you know things that are really weighty um, and yet also I think once you're able to look at the decision right. and I you're able to figure out what it is that you want. So, Shana Goldberg, thank you so much for coming thank down you, and speaking Alex. with us. Uh, what Do You Really Want is on sale here at Shabbat Sefer, but also at tyronpub.com and your local Jewish bookstores. Um, so, thank you so much uh, for coming down and speaking to us. And, uh, you know, thank you. Pleasure to be here. I hope it's a good week for you. Hey, we are delighted to be joined again uh, at Shavuot Sefer by the incredible Shira Lankin Sheps, author of Layers. Shira, thank you so much for joining us here at Shavuot Sefer. Oh, it's really fun to be back. Thank you so much for having me. So we spoke this time last year, I think, at Shavuot Sefer, and uh, we also uh, spoke earlier this season in the podcast at MMY, a really amazing live episode about the book. So hopefully by now our listeners know a little bit about the book. Um, but I guess for those who haven't listened to those episodes yet, can you give a quick uh, lowdown on what our readers can expect to find in Layers if you haven't read sure. it yet? Sure. So Layers is a compilation of 34 true stories that are, I interviewed Jewish women living in Israel about taboo and stigmatized topics. I talked to them about the challenges and triumphs of their lives and I traveled up and down this country in my first year of Aliyah and uh, took photographs and interviewed them and they're just really really incredible stories of resilience and love for this country and love for this people and uh, yeah that's what you'll find there. So the book came out just over a year ago now exactly I think. A year we ago. had it like fresh here at Shavuot Sefer last year. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about kind of what's happened since. Oh gosh, what's happened since? Well, we did a, a really uh, fun book tour. You know, with COVID and everything, we didn't get to get out in real time. But what it did do is it gave us the opportunity to meet with so many more people because we did everything on Zoom. And so we had, I, I don't even know how many uh, book events where I sat with so many different communities and schools and shuls and we talked about the book. We talked about all these really important topics like cancer and infertility and infant loss and war and terrorism and Zionism and all these amazing things that are in this book and uh, broke a lot of stigma. We told a lot of stories and we connected in a really beautiful and human way and it was really it was really profound and really special. We actually just wrapped the book tour like this first year of the book tour and uh, it was amazing. Amazing. And what kind of responses have you 
got obviously we've had reviews and there's been you know blogs and comments and things like that but for you personally what kind of responses have you had to the book some of my favorite responses have has been how the book has been incorporated into people's lives on like a really minute level um there are some people who keep this book by their bedside and read a chapter every night some some women are reading and rereading and rereading because there's so much more to learn there's so much more to mine from these stories from these women um i have the feedback is just that people are seeing themselves reflected in a Judaica store that they pick up the book and they see a little bit about themselves they see a lot of real life they see really powerful stories framed through through spirituality through zionism through human like, real human authentic experience and it's radical and it's revolutionary and it's beautiful and we're so happy that you took a chance on us and published this book in an honor for us to be I think part of this and obviously Leia's book originated from the Leia's project. Yes. Tell us a little bit about what's been going on with the Leia's project. Oh, the, the wider Leia's world or universe. The Leia's the Leia's world is is ever expanding. We are ever expanding the Leia's experience. So when we first started we talked a lot about breaking stigma. That was really important because 5 years ago when we started nobody would talk about challenges or stigmatize or taboo issues online. Khlaw at all. Over the last five years, thank God, there's been such an, a growth, such a, a burst of openness and change, and and the the tenor of the dialogue in our community really has shifted. And so, uh, when we at first we're talking about stigma, then we move to talking about resilience. How do we, through difficult things, take one step in front of the other, kind of like get through our day to day life? And then when we when we felt like we had talked so much about resilience that people really understood, we shifted to self compassion. How do you then love yourself with the challenges in your life? And today, what we're doing is really wonderful. We are now moving into a space where we're talking about healing and growth, right? So after you <laughs> you acknowledge that you've got something really difficult going on, you found the strength to keep going, you found the love for yourself to move through it. Now, how do we heal? How do we grow? How do we shift and change? And and what does that mean for us as individuals, for our relationships? community for our families and it's really incredibly profound and so what we're doing now is we're actually running workshops where we're teaching women to write their stories to write for healing and for themselves and for the community and it's been really profound we actually I just wrapped up the first workshop this this past yesterday yesterday and the feedback was just so touching and and I I I really feel like we've hit on something that was really necessary in the community and so now we're we're really embracing this like modeling healing um in a really different kind of way. Incredible. And if people want to get more information about the workshops, how can they get that info? Yeah, all the information's online, it's on Facebook, on Instagram, on our website. You could check it out at www.thelayersprojectmagazine.com. You could check us out on Instagram at the Layers Project and also on Facebook at the Layers Project. Incredible. Um We like to always ask our visiting authors, taking a look over the current stand. Any, I mean, what are your picks for this year? Last year, you had some picks. Last year, I think it might have been Yael Ziegler's book on Eicha. Yeah. So I don't think you could do that this year again. You might, you can do if you want. But any other picks for this year you'd recommend? Oh, there's so many. There's so so many. There's so many new books coming out. I get emails every week for like new books coming out from. I don't know how you guys. I can't even keep up. It's unbelievable. This new book on Shimon Esrei looks really interesting. Um, the Subversive Sequels by Judy Klitzner is one of my favorite books. I love that book. Uh, Nahama Price's book is an incredible book. Um, yeah, I, 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 Yael Ziegler's first and second <laughs> book. I'm a big fan. You can't go wrong. You can't go wrong. 
Hey, sure. It's always great to see you. Thank you so much for joining us here at Shavuot Sefa and on the podcast. Yeah, it's so fun to be here. So I'm uh, very privileged to be joined now by David Onovit, who is the editor-in-chief of the Karen Tanakh of the Land of Israel project. Um, David, thank you for coming down and joining us. Pleasure. Um, so I suppose before we jump in, I think I'm sure everyone listening uh, is aware of the project, but just sort of give a, a brief explanation of, of what the Karen Tanakh of the Land of Israel is, the thinking behind it, what's the... Uh, philosophy there? Well, I think a lot of people in our world are not really exposed to the background of the Tanakh. Everybody tries to read it through 21st century eyes, and it wasn't written for a 21st century person. We came out of Mitzrayim, we got the Torah, um, the, the Nach was written over a period of, I don't know, maybe a thousand years, and the first commentator that everybody, anybody really pays any attention to is Rashi, who lived around the year 1100. He didn't have any access to the stuff that we have from academia from the last 200 years. And so to understand the Tanakh in the language of the time opens up a whole new vision that people that have studied Tanakh their whole lives just have, have never seen. And it gives you a different view of the meaning and, and the, the purpose of the Tanakh um, without having stripping away all the layers of, of the, the current day. Right, so I mean, at the time of recording, we have two volumes available, Shmuel and uh, Shemot. Right. Um, and so each volume sort of is, is filled with photographs, explanations coming from all areas of, of coming from all areas of, of academia, um, sort of illustrate what's really going on. And so, what's uh, from those two volumes, or even from one of the ones coming up? What's like one thing that if you were talking to someone trying to tell them, you know, you really have to pick up this, this volume, but this series, um, like what's the thing that you would use to illustrate like exactly what's going on? Well, I think that each book has its own aha moments. And I think that when we did Shmot, it was the first one, so we were really nervous about what we could say and what we couldn't say being an Orthodox publisher. But we always stayed within the line of, of Orthodoxy. But when we looked at Exodus, Shemot, through the views of ancient Egypt, it just completely changed the way you read the entire story of the Exodus. For example, if you look at the plagues that they brought on the Egyptians, you have to look at them through the Egyptian point of view and what damage we did to them from their standpoint, not what we did. So if, if you look like the ninth plague, it was dark for three days, so what? I mean, nobody really died. I mean, there's a Midrash that says... A lot of the Jews died, but looking just directly at the text, the ninth plague, it's dark for three days. If you look at the Egyptian religion, their god of the sun, their main god, goes into the underworld at night, struggles with demons in the underworld, and then comes out in the morning. If you messed that up, you messed up their whole view of the world, their view of their, their mythology, their religion, their belief system, destroy. I mean, that's even before Makad B'chorot. Nobody knows that. Right. And so I said as well, when you, it's called the current Tanakh of the land of Israel, and obviously the book of Exodus, book of Shemot, takes place entirely outside of Israel. We're hoping uh, nobody noticed that. <laughs> well, I won't tell anyone if you won't. Um, but the, other, the next volume published was uh, that of Shmuel, Samuel, um, which takes place here, where we're standing. Um, so, I mean, what, how do you decide? I, mean, I think around the time it was published, there was a, they discovered, or they said they had discovered Gilgal um, and various other sort of places mentioned throughout Tanakh. Um, you know, they, they found the site, as it were. 
how do you decide sort of what to include and what not to include? How, when we're publishing, how much uh, uh, weight are we giving to the ongoing academic debate and how much is just like, this is interesting? Well, first of all, it's, it's exciting because things happen all the time. I'm working on it and then something new will come up. One of the best stories is um, it was the end of Shemot. I was getting ready to publish and the deadline, Corin deadlines are very strict. <laughs> and I say, okay, whatever's in is in and whatever hasn't in yet is, is not going in. So I've defined a bunch of topics. I found it, it said Beka Legulgolet when he was talking about giving the Trumats the Mishkan. So I said, oh, maybe there's some archaeology about Beka. So I looked in the in, 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 on the entire academia and nothing. So I say, okay, today it's closing. I open up the Times of Israel. They found a weight from the old city, from the outside the walls of Jerusalem, that had the ancient Hebrew word Becca on the weight. <laughs> exactly the right weight according to what it should be, according to what we know about the Tanakh. That's, that, stuff happens all the time. It's 2,000, 3,000 year old breaking news. Yeah, 2,500 year old news. <laughs> and it's just, it's just, and it happens over and over and over again. All the stuff that we know about the, the Philistines, you talked about Samuel and all the stuff we know about the battles of why David was in a certain place, why Saul had to be up north when he fought the Philistines, died on the Gilboa, what, what, where would the Afek, all these places, now that we live here, we know why strategically they're important and it changes the way you look at it. When it says the Philistines came up Emek Rafaim, well, we're standing right in Emek Rafaim. And, um, and they came because David was over here, I mean, literally over here, you could walk here in about 10 minutes, and that's where he established his, his kingdom. They wanted to stop it because he was a new threat in the neighborhood. They were down on the bottom. We were up in the hills. They saw somebody coming up, and they came up through the, the way that you go up. The train, go, the old train goes up the Emic Rafaim. That's the way they would have come up from then. But we know that now. Right. And I think that, you said before, we, there was a concern of what, you know, how orthodox, how strictly orthodox we need to be when we're writing. But to say that Rashi didn't know, the Malbim didn't know, you know, the 18th, 19th century, it's not to disparage Chazal, it's not to disparage sort of these ancient commentators. It's to say they, they weren't here, look, they didn't I, know. Look, I don't, I don't do any commentary. Anytime I even get close to the line of commentary, I stop. Because this is not a commentary, it's a background. It's a background Bible, the Christians would call it a background Bible. Right. So if, if I'm going to explain the meaning of something or literary illusion between one part of the Tanakh and the other, I can't come up to Rashi's soul, much less his ankles, into what I can do. Right. But I have to be consistent with Chazal because we, we have that, we build, we're built on their shoulders. Right. But we also, when you look at Rashi, Rashi has a map in his commentary. Mitzrayim is directly south of Israel. Right. It's not south of Israel. I mean, but that doesn't mean that Rashi's wrong about, about anything in his commentary. I would be horribly wrong in my commentary, but he doesn't know anything about Mesopotamia, Egypt, the Hittites, and everything else that, that would have influenced the Jews and the Israelites, not even the Jews yet at the time. Right. Um, and as well, earlier this year, you were in with another of our authors, Rabbi Joshua Berman, uh, and our esteemed publisher, Matthew Miller. You were taken to Egypt um, to sort of go and have a look around. I mean, so we walk around, you say, we're, we're standing now on Emek Rafaim, where Shaul and David were and you know, stones throw from the old city and, and Ir David. Um, but it's one thing to sort of be a Jew walking in sort of the, the land, the ancient land of the Jewish people, the, the Israelites. How was it to be a modern Jew walking through ancient Egypt? How did that change your Oh, 
Take a tool. Well, first of all, I wish I went on the trip before I did the book of Exodus, <laughs> not after. Um, Rabbi Berman is just, he was, he was really the one that got me started on this whole project academically. I sat with him and understood this whole way of looking at the Tanakh, and he really, really got me started along the path. And he's been my Rebbe the entire time, and I really respect him. Um, first of all, it was the best line was we were walking through, we, we were wearing a kippot in the shuk in, in, in Cairo. And one of the Egyptians says, where are you from? We said, from, from Jerusalem, from Israel. He said, welcome back. <laughs> but, but see the ancient civilizations. To be in Ramses' temple, we don't know who the real pharaoh of the Yitzhak Mitzrayim was of the Exodus, but, but most fingers point towards Ramses. But to go to Ramses' temple and to see the storehouses around the temple built out of bricks where you can still see the straw Right. That was just amazing. And, and, and we also just, just learned new things by looking at the tomb paintings when it says that um, in the, in the, when, when the princes brought the gifts, the 12 princes in that boring part of Nassau <laughs> that we just read, and it says kaf echad. So everybody translates the kaf because in modern Hebrew, a kaf is a, it's a tablespoon or a spoon. Right. But that wasn't in ancient Hebrew. It doesn't appear anywhere else. Kaf. Kaf regel is, is, a, is a foot. Right. And kaf yad is a hand. But kaf being a utensil, they didn't know. But you see, when the Egyptians were offering incense to their gods, they, wouldn't, they couldn't touch the gods in their religion. They, they, they had to be below the gods because they were only human. They would, they would take a hand, a spoon in the shape of a hand, and offer the incense on it. That was the kaf that we were talking about. And you can so, see those today. Well, well, you can see, see the pictures right. on the side. I mean, modern Egypt is nothing compared to ancient Egypt. Right. It just um, the, the, the technology, the civilization, the culture, the beauty is just, you can't, you can't believe it until you actually stand there and look at it. But to look at it through the eyes of the Tanakh, through Rabbi Berman's eyes, just, just really opened up a lot of new panoramas for us. So we've touched on the Golgotha, which sort of, you know, you open, you open the paper and, and there it was, sort of the, the day of the deadline. Um, what sort of one uh, discovery, I suppose, what's one thing that you've come across that's really, like, blown your mind, either from the two existing volumes or one of the upcoming volumes? We've got two more coming out quite shortly, uh, Vayikra um, and Leviticus and, and uh, Bamidbar, Numbers. Um, but, you know, either a future volume or, or uh, a previous one that's really sort of blown your mind, changed the way that you look at that. I think that Samuel, because there's so much that connects you to the land of Israel, and it's not any one thing, it's the whole picture together, to understand where the Philistines were and what the relationship to the Jews were, to the Israelites, and what we know about the time of King David. For a long time in academia, there was a huge debate where the entire side of the debate said there was no such thing as King David. I mean, you can't tell that to an Orthodox Jew. And then, that was in the 90s, it was a lot, a lot of it was out of Tel Aviv University. And then over the years since the 90s, we found more and more things from the time of David. The problem with, with Jerusalem is that it's so steep in the old city of David part that every time they would do another layer, it's not a tell. Right. They don't build it layer by layer. They had to sweep it all off and start all over again. So there's very little from earlier periods. So they said an absence of evidence is an evidence of absence, right? That's, what, that's the, right. The, the, the phrase. But it's not. They, they found Kirbet Kiafa in 2007, which was definitely a fortress built on the border with the Philistines at exactly the time that David would have killed Goliath. And it makes sense that it was there. 
and they've just found um, what they think is Tiklag. That's what you were talking about ah, before. And um, but there's a big debate about it, whether it is, whether it isn't. But the fact is, there was a polity that could build something major at the time of King David right. that didn't exist in the 90s. The more that we know, the more that the Tanakh is being verified historically. I mean, there's not, that, not to say that there's not a lot of problems with it. And we do point out those problems, but we can only go up to a certain point. But we, we, we do understand a lot more about very time periods. Israel is the most dug country in the world. And more archaeology is done here than anywhere else, and more archaeology is done in Jerusalem than anywhere else in the, in the country. So stuff comes out of the ground all the time, and, it's, and it, it changes. I mean, yeah. I'm looking forward to the second edition of all the volumes. <laughs> no, it is amazing. I think it's also as well, it's a, a, a fantastic demonstration of sort of the current philosophy of, of fusing, I suppose, like the modern Israeli endeavor, um, Jewish state, with the Tanakh uh, and everything that goes along with it. Well, we, we've got sovereignty now right. in the country. Which helps. Which is, is fabulous. And also academics. It's just a flourishing of Jewish culture that's going on here. And academia is just sprouting, and what we're trying to do is bring all that new information and gives you a broader vision of the Tanakh to the normal person in a Jewish way. And I think that the series has been successful. God willing, we'll get all the way through. Yeah, it's a fantastic series. It's really, really wonderful. Anyone listening who hasn't yet had a chance to take a look inside one of the volumes, you should definitely take, uh, make sure you get the opportunity to do so. Um, so thank you to David Arnovitz, Editor-in-Chief of the land of Israel. Uh, two volumes available now, but there are more coming uh, in the very near future, please, God. Um, so thank you very much for coming down to spend time with us. Totally my pleasure. So we're very excited to be joined here at Shavua Sefer by Dr. Nehemia Polin, author of the new book, Stop, Look and Listen. Dr. Polin, thank you so much for joining us here at Shavua Sefer. It's wonderful to be here. So thank your you. book just came out. Um, tell us a little bit about it. Um, and the book was about Shabbos, so also maybe, and not Shabbat, so tell us a little bit about that as well. The reason why I call it Shabbos is because it's my attempt to channel Shabbos that I learned growing up. And um, that is to say, it's not a series of unrelated events, maybe going to synagogue Friday night or going to a Kiddush, but it's a total immersive experience and at least in my understanding it relates to Stay. Eastern European milieu where you were totally enveloped, totally embraced, totally immersed in Shabbos. So that's why that's why I used that. And when was it the when was it you decided to write the book? Was it something you were thinking about for a while or what made you decide to write this book in particular? Yes, indeed. Um, I've been using this framework to talk about Shabbos for maybe 15, 20 years. But you know how it works, that you have a basic idea, and yet to find the register, um, to get it in writing, and to be able to convey what you feel in, in words that you hope will leap off the page takes a tremendous amount of time. So the basic stop work, uh, uh, stop look, listen framework uh, has been there for quite a while and that is my attempt to to translate the older theological understanding of creation revelation redemption 
into perhaps more contemporary experiential terms. Perhaps the most fundamental is that Shabbos does not mean a day of rest. Observers of Shabbos don't necessarily get all that much rest, although you should try to get some extra, but um, we're actually very, very uh, busy with the immersive experience of tefillah, of prayer, of um, socializing with others, of simply being present with family and friends and community. Uh, so it's not really so much of a day of, uh, of rest as it is of a day of acute presence and sensitivity and awareness. So I translate uh, the Hebrew word Shavat, Shin Bet Taf, uh, not so much as rest, but as cessation. So I think of it more, if you want to use the word rest, I say think, of, think more as a musical rest. The, the, the violinist doesn't take the bow off the string because their muscles are tired. The violinist takes the bow off the string to allow the music to develop a certain cadence, a certain rhythm. And when you observe Shabbos, your whole life has the rhythm of 6-1, six, 6-1, one, six, one, six, one, and it goes on forever. So I think of it this way. I, I, I think of this, ryth this rhythmic cadence one, two, three, four, five, six, rest. One, two, three, four, five, six, rest. And that, and that continues from the time of creation on, until the eschaton. I guess in the current times, in 2022, there's been a lot of events going on in the world over the past couple of years. Why do you think this book, or maybe Shabbos, is so important today for, for us and for communities, for Jews worldwide? The, the obvious answer is the ascendancy of technology. It's, uh, um, I have one in my pocket. Right now we're on audio, not video, but in my little vest pocket here is a device, an iPhone, and it's really quite stunning. It's really quite astonishing that now, what, maybe 12 years ago, this didn't exist at all. And now there are many billions of them. Almost everyone in the planet have one. Pe people who don't have indoor plumbing have, have um, a smartphone. So like, where is this coming from? And what this does, what it promised, of course, was connectivity. But what they really do is that, that they actually inhibit intimacy because you're never present where you actually are. So in that sense, Shabbos is acutely necessary. It's, it's a time, literally, uh, what I call, it's a technology interregnum. You don't, you, you're not like some fundamentalist groups that will eschew technology entirely. Torah doesn't ask you to do that. But by putting it aside in a very deep way, in a total fundamental way for one day a week, you come to the realization that you are in charge of the technology rather than the technology being in charge of you. So in that sense, it's most acutely necessary right now. But this was always the case. There were always distractions. There were always things pulling you away. And, and Shabbos is this immersive experience. I, I would add that while I am at this moment highlighting the, perhaps the pragmatic, a kind of a utilitarian um, 
approach to why Shabbos is so necessary, the book keeps on saying you cannot merely stay at the utilitarian level because if you just see it as another workaround for a contemporary problem, what it means is that you're using Shabbos to have a better uh, sort of functional work week. And it has to be the other way around, that say ultimately, ultimately, the, the reason to keep Shabbos is spiritual, is religious, is because it connects you to something higher. Amazing. Well, Dr. Poland, thank you so much for joining us here at Shavuot Sefer. Um, uh, one quick Shavuot Sefer story you might not know yet. I was here on a couple of nights, well, earlier in the week, and uh, some small cute kids came up to our stand, tapped on your book and said, this is Zadie's book. <laughs> so your grandkids are very, uh, yeah. we're getting much nachat from your book. Yeah. Um, yeah. I hope you get much nachat from the grandkids and from the book as well. And thank you so much for joining us here. It's a real pleasure and a real honor. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thanks so much. So I'm now uh, very honored to be joined by Oriya Mavora, uh, whose book, Ma'ap Mavakeshet, uh, has been flying off the shelves here in Israel. Um, we wanted to catch a few moments uh, of your time, Oriya. Um, because the book is being translated currently will be available hopefully uh, next year in uh, 2023. Um, if you could give our audience, uh, all the listeners at home, a very brief idea of what the book is about, what you're bringing to the world, which is, I think, something very, very unique. Okay, first of all, I've heard so much about your podcast and I'm, I'm very honored to be <laughs> here. <laughs> I have a, an amazing translator that is working uh, on my book in this uh, right now, so it's really it's really amazing for me to talk about it in English. Um, as a religious Jewish people in the Western world, we are being flooded with so many uh, hidden ideologies about love and body and sexuality. It comes, uh, we, we meet it in the media, in the popular media. Sometimes it could just be a small sentence that we see on a, on a, uh, uh, on a paragraph in the newspaper or or on a video clip that we watch, uh, and we sh my book is trying to give us tools to criticize all these hidden ideologies that we're surrounded by, and to understand, first of all, what they're telling us, because usually they don't say it on the text, they just actually, they, they say it subtextually, okay? So we need to first to understand what they're, what they're telling us, and then second, second of all, we need to we need to understand what is the problem with this ideology. For example, okay, I'll give an example that I also give in the book. Uh, Mariah Carey, the famous singer, right. she says, she was, she was quoted in Israel in the, the most popular website in Israel, and also uh, it's, a, it's an interview from the United States. She says, I've been only with five men in my life. I'm innocent in comparison to the others, right. to the other women, okay? And I'm, I'm listening to this, and first I'm asking my students, do you agree with this sentence? And they, they look at me and they say, what, what, what do we have to agree about? I mean, it's, it's only a fact. She says, I've been with only five men. Do we have to agree or disagree with it? And then I say, okay, in the, subtext, in the text level, we cannot agree or disagree, but let's think about the subliminal message that even sometimes she's not aware of, but actually her sentence, her quote says that sexuality is opposed to innocent, right. to, to being innocent. The sexuality is something dirty, something not pure. And, I'm, and then I'm, I'm, I'm giving this to my, my, my readers or to my students and I'm asking them, now, do you agree with it? That sexuality is all the time, in principle, 
is opposed to to being pure, to be to being um, I don't know whatever it means that we're not we're not innocent, okay? Uh, and then they said, oh, I need to think about it. What does it really mean? And then I give them another example. Let's say I, I got this uh, this example. I, I was I was scrolling my my smartphone and then I got um, questionnaire that asked, let's see how dirty your mind is, okay? And now I have to mark the answers. They give me 10 questions. Uh, which associate is the most accurate for this picture? And I need to, to write the first associate that I, that I think of, and I deliberately marked the, one that are se- the, the ones that are sexual, right. deliberately. And then right. I got, the, I got the, the results, and it was, you have 90% uh, dirty, 10% innocent, and, and then they also clapped me, they're like cheering me, because they said, it seems like everything you think of is, is, is sex. You think only about this. Everything is dirty in your mind. And then go ahead. It's so great that you think about it so openly, okay? And, and I thought, if my children would have got this, uh, this message, what would, they, what would they get? They would understand, first they would get that sexuality is dirty and not thinking about sexuality is being clean and mm-hmm. pure in that. And that's something I don't want them to think. I don't want them to think that, in principle, sexuality is dirty. The next thing they will think that, okay, in some, uh, there, are, there are some areas where being dirty is great. It's, it's fine. Everyone is clapping for me. Everyone is cheering me. And that is something I don't think uh, many people uh, recognize when they're just scrolling their screen. They need to stop and think. And so my book is giving them the, these tools to look at this and to, un, to, to try to understand. What I just uh, gave you are small examples of a certain specific discourse that I call in my book permissive discourse, which, is, uh, which actually says that sexuality is something low and dirty, but it's fun, so why not? Okay? Right. But there are many different options, uh, again, that we, we get in the media. I mean, sometimes we can... Sometimes we can uh, um, find the, 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 the opposite discourse that says that sexuality is divine. In principle, everything, uh, in principle, every sexual uh, interaction in between two adult people that have consent is divine and spiritual and very good. Uh, where, where do we, uh, so that's, that's another discourse. And we also have another three that we didn't speak of. Right. Uh, here. Okay. So, so the, the book it takes a look at certain things that we traditionally think of as uh, as dirty, as as taboo, as, as uh, you know something that a, a good Jew doesn't think about, doesn't talk about, and it looks at them and it approaches them as things like you know, things like sexuality as being an asetov is it can be a good thing as opposed to a tzumera. We don't talk about it. It's not for us. It's not what we do. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so why in the modern world, why do you think as a Datilo me person, someone who is, is not Haredi, someone who is coming from a point of view of religion, but modern orthodoxy, um, why is this such a, an important message for not just children, but for, for adults, parents, not parents, anyone, just any, any sort of uh, thinking, thoughtful person, why is this such an important message? Okay, so first of all, the message is not just sexuality is not dirty. There are many, many more messages that we need to, to examine and to look at. 
Uh, I don't say, the book doesn't say that sexuality is good in principle. It does, it's not good, it's not bad. It, it, it's all, it all depends on, on the, the, um, context. the context, exactly. Uh, but what I can tell you is that many people write, uh, here in Israel I get every day at least one respond, even not, sometimes even five. And what really uh, repeats itself is the, the saying that this book gives them, okay, the, bur- the book makes an, makes an order in such a, a messy um, area. It, it gives them... Um, helps them make sense. El- help, exactly. Helps, and then every time they scroll uh, and surf in the internet or even talk to friends in the army or, in, or at work or, at, or in uh, college, they can find which messages they identify with and which they are not. And it really gives them tools to be a Jewish person in the Western uh, society that right. we are in. I think it, it really is. I mean, it can't be overstated just how the impact the book is having in Israel at the moment, and it is a real privilege of ours to have published it in Hebrew and to be publishing it uh, in English. He's got in the near future. Um, so I just want to say thank you for giving us some time. I know you're here with a camera crew this evening, uh, being <laughs> followed you. around. So I'll, I'll let you get back to what you're doing, signing books and talking to people. People have been lining up all night just to have a, a very quick word with you right, about your book amazing. and how you're doing so it. It's And it's amazing to see. And so, and first of all, thank you for doing that important work, regardless <laughs> of Karan and Magid. And that thank you especially uh, for giving us your time and for okay. bringing it up to us. Thank you so much. We are delighted to be joined here at Shavua Sefer by Rabbi Yedidia Sinclair, who translated and wrote the commentary um, on Shabbat Taaretz in the new book, The Sabbath of the Land. Uh, Rabbi Sinclair, thank you so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, so I, I love Shua Sefer, and it's my first time on the other side of the table. So right. So, it's a big so you're, uh, you're Rishalmi, you live around nearby. So. Yes. yes. Cool. So, um, Sabbath of the Land. Tell us a little bit about what can our readers expect to find in the book. Well, um, it's uh, it's based on Hagav uh, Cook's Shabbat Haaretz, which was probably the most important and influential book about Shemitah, the sabbatical year to be written, I'd say, in the last 800 years so, since the Rambam's Hilchot Shemitah Yovel. So, so what, what what we've done there is uh, we've translated Rav's, Rav Cook's beautiful and poetic introduction and also selections from the halachic core of the work. So Shabbat Haaretz was primarily an, an argument for uh, the Heta Mechira, the, uh, the leniency to sell the land in the Shemitah year, which was necessary 100 years ago for the pioneers. So, so he gave a brilliant uh, and audacious halachic argument for that, and we've made that avail- some of that available to readers for the first time, and together with commentary and then essays around like what's going on, the history, the ideas, who was Rav Kook, what was his thinking. So the idea is to make a difficult book as accessible and readable for, for general readers as possible. And what was it that made you, what drew you to Shabbat Haaretz or what, what was it that made you decide to kind of embark on this project? Um, well, I, I've been fascinated by Shemitah for a long, long time. Um, uh, it was actually, Pashat Baha was my Pemitzvah Sedra. I didn't really understand what, what it was about then, but I, but uh, it was also my Ufwuf, and so I keep, you know, fate keeps bringing me back to uh, to Shemitah, and um, you know, I, I think it's you know it's the blueprint for a Jewish economic system. And so, I'm, you know, I find it fascinating to think about what would it Whoa. mean to uh, to make that more sort of real and relevant in uh, in Medina Israel today. And I guess bringing it today, obviously, we're standing here in Israel in a Shnat Shemitah in the sabbatical year, but 
in any other year, or maybe especially this year, why is the mitzvah Shemitah, or why is learning Shabbat Haaretz so relevant? Uh, first of all, it's a, just a privilege to be able to keep the mitzvot Shabbat Haaretz today in, uh, in Eretz Israel. You know, for a long time, it just wasn't practical or relevant, it was just theoretical, and now we actually have the, the, the opportunity to put into practice these mitzvot, which is which is an, you know, an incredible schut, a great, great privilege, and, uh, and so we want to know how to do it. And then sort of more broadly and, and beyond that, you know, I think it has something to teach us about, you know, you know, about big problems. I mean, Schmidt is about overusing and overexploiting the land and not doing that. It's about socioeconomic inequality, and it's about not overworking and you know, giving time to renew and restore oneself. And you know, these are... You know, these are real-life spiritual issues in our society, and I think Shemitah still has has plenty to teach us about how to manage these issues better. And uh, obviously, worked on this book and translated and read the commentary of the Sabbath of the Land. But looking around today, I guess moving on from this book, are there any other Koran or Market books that you'd uh, recommend our listeners to, to pick up a copy of? Um, there's a, there's a whole lot. Um, <laughs> I, I'm I, you know I'm I'm one for classics, so. Um, uh, books about my great uh, teachers, Zichonam Levracham, the book in by his light, Rav Aaron Lichtenstein Zatzal, Faith uh, Shattered and Restored by my teacher Rav Shagar Zatzal, um, and, and I, I really love uh, the uh, biography of uh, Rav Goran um, uh, with strength and might. I think it's called. It's in, incredibly, ex- yeah, incredibly exciting, dramatic story. I recommend all of those. Okay, well, Rabbi Sinclair, thank you so much for joining us uh, here for Shavuot Sefer and uh, braving the wind as well, <laughs> if our listeners can hear. Um, and we really recommend everyone, either here at Shavuot Sefer or through our website, to pick up a copy of The Sabbath of the Land as a really great way of feeling the Shemitah this year. Hey, thank you, Harry. Bye. Thanks so much. We are very excited to be joined by Rav Yaakov Nagen here at Shavuot Sefer in Yerushalayim. Rav Nagen, thank you so much for joining us on this uh, slightly cold, chilly, windy Jerusalem evening. Uh, it is a pleasure to be here. So we're very honoured to have you as part of uh, one of our authors. And uh, in, definitely in the English side, we've published two of your books over the past couple of years. So just wanted to take a couple of minutes to talk about them. Um, the first one that can be found here at Shavuot Sefer and also on our website is uh, Be Become Blessed. Um, so if any of our listeners haven't read it yet, can you tell us a little bit about Be Become Blessed? Right, so the full title is Be, Be Become Blessed, Jewish Spirituality Between East and West. And it's uh, a vision of really of Judaism t- um, incorporating aspects we see of Eastern spirituality, but Western civilization. And in fact, it's touched both sides of the globus because uh, unknown to me, in China, they translate into Chinese, Italians into Italian. Now it's been translated to German, so I'm happy also in English from the Hebrew original. Um, and I'm happy it touches Jews and non-Jews alike. And obviously this is a subject you're passionate about, bringing together philosophy and, and uh, thought of East and West. What made you decide to do it through the weekly Parsha? Um, I think one of the miracles of the Parsha is that for thousands of years Jews have been reading the Parsha and each one of us is so different we could always find our, ourselves within the context of the Parsha the issues, the questions that are challenging us the same person in different parts of life finds the Torah's Parsha speaking to us and part, 
There's a, there's a beautiful quote by Marcel Proust that the challenge of life, it's not in discovering new lands, but in seeing the old ones with new eyes. The Parsha, it's not new lands, but, but renewal, seeing it with new eyes every year, this is really the power of Judaism. It's not switching one thing for something else. It's within the same thing, experiencing and seeing it with new eyes. Amazing. So Be Become Blessed is definitely a really incredible way to see the parasha with new eyes. Or if you're a Hebrew reader, um, it's also available as Nehit and Leon Chadash. It's been available for quite a few years, a classic. Um, so we recommend all our listeners to uh, pick up a copy either in Hebrew or English. Um, moving on to the soul of the Mishnah, Nishmat Mishnah in English. So tell us a little bit about Nishmat Mishnah, the soul um, of the Mishnah. So I think one of the great masterpieces of Judaism is the Mishnah. And this has often been lost to us because we often look at the Mishnah as a jumping board to get to the Talmud or a way to get some basic facts. But it's a, it's a masterpiece and the very decision of saying, let me look at the Mishnah as a work that stands on its own, making statements about fundamental issues of life in the Torah. This in itself is a game changer in Mishnah becoming a fundamental work for our lives. And this is so important because in so many settings, whether family settings, spouses together, parents with children, Mishnah being short in an easy text is so accessible. The problem is if you don't know what to do with it, it could be dry and empty. So hopefully the soul of Mishnah will give that meaning and significance to this basic classic. Talking a little bit about, I guess, methodology, let's say. So when I went to school, uh, you know, we would learn Mishnah and it would be and you'd learn the Mishnah, you'd read what it says and we'd talk a little about the Misa, practically what it means and then move on. Yeah. How is your approach to Mishnah study different from this to, let's say, classic Mishnah study? Um, I'll the question, like, I think most people know the first, or maybe I'll mention in, in Kedushin there's a mitzvah that talks about, Mishnah talks about the mitzvot ha'av ala ben and then the mitzvot ha'ben ala av. And to realize this is dialogue, dialoguing the ending verse of the book of Sifrei Nevi'im. Um, realizing that opens up that beyond the, mish- the chapter, uh, first chapter of Kedushin, there's a subtext, there's a story beyond it that illuminates what the mission is trying to tell us. So a lot of it's using um, literary techniques, word plays, structure, images, and I try that be meaningful without being fluffy. In fact, a lot of the work done, some of the mechazetos appeared in my doctorate at Hebrew University, which is infamous for how straight they are. Right, right. And I think, I mean, both, both books have in common the idea that, you know, and something that we try to do with a lot of our books is to take a text like the Mishnah or like the Parasha and take it seriously, but also find meaning and, uh, and feeling to it as well. Um, looking at the books here today, just like it's moving on from your books, what, are there any particular Koran or Magid books that are your favorite that you'd recommend people pick up? Well, I feel really one of the great luminaries of our time is really Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, and I think it is an honor to publish through Magid Books, where this great giant um, was a giant not only for the Jewish people, but for all of humanity, also has his books. So, it's always, so I'm grateful for Magid for putting out his books, in the English for me, in the Hebrew for my kids. Thank you. Amazing. Ravna, again, really great to see you as always, and thank you for joining us at Shavuot Sefer. My pleasure. Great to be here. Uh, welcome back to the Quran Podcast, to Rabbi Dr. Sharon Shalom. Hi. Uh, we were very privileged uh, to speak to uh, Rav Sharon 
some months ago with uh, Nathan Sharansky um, about their journeys to Israel. Uh, since that interview, Rav Sharon Shalom's uh, book, Dialogues of Love and Fear, uh, has been published by Mugged Books. Um, so I think our first question is, uh, what feedback have you received? How has the book been received uh, by the world? What have people said to you um, about the book and how they have understood it? And so, Shalom Alex, I'm very, very happy to be here. And I feel that this is celebration, really mommy celebration to see all the book. People here, I'm very, very happy to be here. And regarding your question, I got a lot of uh, very positive feedback about the book. Very, very, from over uh, state, from Atlanta, from uh, Los Angeles, from Washington, and from New York. It's amazing, amazing. And all the feedback positive feedback. The main thing is that, that I got is that you know people told me and you know I used to say that my purpose in the world is to bring people to be in confused. Because <laughs> people they very sure about them. I'm sure, I'm sure and and and, and the conversation among society slowly slowly make change to be very dichotomy black and white mm -hmm. okay, in America in Israel and you us or again us so I think this concept of dialogue of fear love and fear bring people to think very complicated mm -hmm. the life is not white and black no this is something more complicated so a lot of the feedback as I got is this concept that I bring a lot of issue mm -hmm. through dialogue is something that's very, very important for the um, dichotomy conversation which we see today. Right. Um, so the book is, is based a little bit on your life and the conversations you had with your wife uh, when you first met and, and of course, you know, now uh, through your marriage. What do you think uh, sort of your relationship with your wife and the conversation between the Kessa's son in the book and the rabbi's daughter, um, what does that show about the rest of the world? What are we learning from the, the two characters in the book? I think, you know, actually, by the way, in Israel, intermarriage between Ethiopian and Ethiopian mm -hmm. stand on 12%. In America, way, between black and white, uh, stand on 6% only. Not, a, not just Jewish? Uh, not in generally in, in America? Generally, yeah, wow, in generally okay. in America. And here, this is amazing. Only in 40 years, yeah. Ethiopian Jews and non-Ethiopian uh, uh, stand on 12%. Wow. Uh, so, which is, say, in other words, the problem here in integration here is not about racism. It's about who is a Jew. Right. And I think this book brings bring a lot of issue here, a lot of through the books, to say, not bring people to say the problem is not here, 
well, it's not, you know, what I say before, it's not dichotomy between Jewish and non-Jewish or uh, black and white, Sephardi people and Ashkenazi people. The, if people, if they can't understand each other, it's not because I am, you know, originally I'm from Ethiopia and my wife, she is from Switzerland or something like that or son of the case or son of the daughter. This is conflict between two people. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they can't understand each other. And if we listen and we, and we speak uh, slowly, slowly, in a lot of passion, understand each other, so everything can, uh, can result of the problem. Right. So the book was published first in Ivrit. Uh, and Dialogues on Love and Fear is, is a translation into English. And you say that the, sort of the, the problem here in Israel is different to the problem in America, in England, in, in Canada, wherever else. Why was it important to you to make sure that the book was translated to English so that Jewish people, non-Jewish people, whoever around the world could, uh, could understand and read the messages that you're trying to get across it's very very important to be in English because first of all in English we can give the story to more people in the world it's English only not in Hebrew in Hebrew it's very you know small you know only in Israel so English language give us opportunity to expand the people which they can read and the participant and right. they bring them uh, to read this uh, first. Secondly, I think uh, Israeli, uh, you know, I just a couple days ago, I participated in conference. Name is uh, religion and integra- integration. Mm-hmm. So in the world we see that people move from one country to the other country. And there is a lot of con- conflict mm-hmm. between uh, immigrant and between, uh, uh, you know, people so I think the problem which was here in Medinat Israel between a lot of you know, immigration from all the world, the same problem, same problem only in America, in Europe. So I think it's very, very important uh, because this book, this concept of the book, which is uh, stand on dialogue between very different people can help to a lot of people to understand because at the end of the book uh, the daughter of the rabbi and the son of the case they marry right. together yes they marry so i think uh, it's it's, uh, it's a good uh, good uh, end right a good uh, end a very happy ending yeah very <laughs> a happy end happy end it's not ho- because it's hollywood no right the, the life is you know as you see the uh, throughout the dialogue it's, it's very very complicated right. but if you know that the problem is not only white and black and you know dichotomy and we listen each others really so at the end of course can be a happy end right. and so in the book you talk about how you know, the, the question isn't black against white or, or whatever it is it's about you know who who is a Jew how has how did your experience of, of Aliyah from Ethiopia and now 
going through Tzahal and then to Yeshivat Haratzion, uh, you know, the Hezdi uh, Yeshiva, um, and then into, you know, the Rav of a, a community, mostly of Ashkenazim and, and a lot of uh, survivors from the Holocaust. Yeah. So how has your life sort of informed, what have you learned from your life story so far um, that has helped resolve a lot of these questions? Yeah. Have given, like, helped you come to answers for a lot of these questions about who is a Jew? How does a, a Jew from Ethiopia get along with a, a Holocaust survivor from Poland or Romania or Ukraine or whatever it is? What, what about your life? Will you sit down? Yeah, thank you. It's a good question. <laughs> thank you, Alex. Uh, I want to tell you that, you know, when I arrive here, there is a lot of questions. Who I am? I am more Ethiopian, more brown, black. Uh, I am Israeli. I am... I am Later, if I religion, I'm I'm Ashkenazi or Sephardi. I'm Ethiopian. So I was this question of identity, and I slowly, slowly, I paid attention that people, about 80 percent of the people here, the conversation is in a, a somehow, 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 in in level what I call a, not identity is identification. Mm-hmm. It's mean identification is people see in my color say, ah, he's Ethiopian, or ah, he's Faradi, or he Ashkenazi. This is identification because pe- we recognize people uh, how they see or their, uh, you know, and this is very super superficial, not deeply. So I, all the time, I live any con- conversation about uh, you know uh, identification, and I, I all the time I see identity. Identity is meant to see not what exists on the f- surface, mm-hmm. but what exists under the ground right. to see deeply. So, for example, uh, when I come to uh, to go to, um, to be rabbi, and I went to um, uh, to get a job as a rabbi. And someone, he was a, 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 a Haredi rabbi, he told me which he can't give me the job. And I asked him why, and he told me because they are not, that I'm not black enough. And I was in shock now, I'm Ethiopian, why you... He told me, no, 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 I, I mean about your keeper. Your keeper is not black, <laughs> not your skin color. And I took my keeper. And I, you know, scream against him, say, say, if you recognize me, according to my keeper, if I will be good rabbi for, for my community, so I want, I don't want to be a rabbi. And right. he told me, of course, of course. But the other side, when I, when they are, uh, my synagogue, my community, they, they are Holocaust survivors, they right. accept, accept me as a rabbi, uh, someone from newspaper asks them how they receive rabbi, and they answer, "We don't know Ethiopian. We knew Sharon." And it's very, very important because Char- Ethiopian is identification, right. and Sharon is identity. And I think through this book, a dialogue of love and fear, I try to bring and to take people. From uh, uh, you know uh, discipline, this is emphasized on on identification. I want to bring people 
to be that the, our conversation have to be in identity instead of identification. I think our previous uh, discussion with you, with uh, Nathan Sharansky as well, is one of our most listened to uh, podcast episodes in the, the two years that we've been on the air. And I think it really speaks to just how uh, personable and how, how, um, how you really do display this idea that it's not about what I wear, it's not about my skin color, it's not about where I come from, it's about who I am, it's about what I'm saying, it's about... Uh, we're all Jewish, and so let's have these yeah. conversations. Yeah. Um, and through being different, we can all be better. Um, and I think that really comes through, first of all, the work that you're doing. It comes through in the book as well. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's very, very appropriate that everyone should uh, you know, go out and get a copy uh, and read it because there is something for everyone to learn on almost every single page of the book. Uh, and so I want to say thank you for coming down to speak to us today. Thank you for writing the book. Thank you for letting us publish it. Um, and hopefully more and more people will be able to read it uh, and to learn more. And all together, we'll be able to stop looking at identification and uh, trying to understand identity. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's it. That is the end of the episode. Um, it was such a pleasure to be joined by not just our guests, but the many, many thousands of people who stopped by uh, our bookstand at Jerusalem's First Station. Uh, if you weren't able to join us, uh, you can get all of the wonderful books mentioned over the course of this podcast and anything else at www.currenpub.com. Um, and if you enter the promo code podcast at checkout, you can get 10% off your entire order. Uh, you can reach us by email, podcast at currenpub.com or via social media at Karen Publishers. Um, please make sure to like, follow, subscribe, uh, wherever you're listening. Uh, it definitely helps. And make sure to tell all your friends about the amazing uh, Karen podcast that you enjoy every episode of. So until next time, goodbye.